The passage today is from Genesis chapter 20, and I'll read the whole thing. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech did not approach her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that, you will pray for, so, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say to him, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So there's a a lot of good reasons why I believe that this right here is actually God's word, and it's trustworthy. You can bank your life on it. It has authority. It's actually words from God. And one of the sneaky evidences and reasons why I trust this is how the Bible is absolutely unafraid of showing the raw ugliness of its heroes. If you look at any uh, institution that has a public figure that falls, often one of the first things they do is they deny, they hide, and one of the rationalizations of why they hide their public leader's failures is because they're afraid that if they were to be honest about all that this leader had done, it would destroy the whole organization. You know what I'm saying? Happens all the time. Classic playbook. We've seen many churches do that, and God willing, we would never do that in our church. And the rationale is if we share this stuff, then our whole institution will fail. People will see that, that, you know, maybe they'll doubt, maybe we'll lose funding, maybe this, maybe that. And the thing is, the Bible, though it has many heroes, 
Many of them fail, and the Bible just lets it all out there. That's a sneaky evidence for the validity of it. Why would the Bible talk about those things publicly? Because they're true. Because they happened. And the Bible didn't shy away from truth, even if it makes it us potentially look bad and makes the Bible potentially look bad. And that should give you great hope that this word does not sugarcoat reality. And that encourages me, and I hope it encourages you, because the heroes of the faith and God's people can often live very contradictory lifestyles. We are maddeningly contradictory, aren't we? And God's people are not immune from that. Often we can say one thing and do another, and we are often horrified that we do, would do such a thing, and yet we have done it. And that encourages me because when we look at our passage this morning that Scott just read, we're going to see one of the heroes of the faith fall real bad. He's going to regress. He's going to backslide. In a moment of weakness, he's going to risk everybody and everything to save his own skin. It's a bad look. And the Bible didn't shy away from it. And this is a helpful reminder that God is discipling and taking Abraham on a journey of faith. And it's not linear. It's not like it's just like this. Perfect. Uh, There's a, a famous counselor, David Powlison, who says it like this. Sanctification is like a man walking up the stairs with a yo-yo. There are lots of ups and downs, right? Ups and downs, but you are making forward progress. You are ascending. And that's the case for all of us. We are going to have ups and downs. Our hearts are going to have ups and downs. Our life is going to have ups and downs. But by the Holy Spirit, we're going to progressively be growing to be more like Christ. And Abraham has lots of ups and downs, and we're going to see one of his worst downs possible. We're going to explore in this passage is how can one man fall back into the same sin? And how can we avoid doing the same? Because we do. And finally, how can God be gracious in the midst of all of our faithlessness? So let's recap a few, the last few weeks before we jump in. So if you're a visitor, there's a handful of you here. We've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and it's been taking us to a lot of strange passages, and we're gonna, we just take it, whatever the Bible says, we're going to talk about it. We're going to let God set the agenda. And what we've noticed in the last few weeks is that there is a just destruction of Sodom and the surrounding cities for their rampant generational wickedness and injustice and suppression of, of many But the sad reality that we've discovered is just because you destroy a city and you leave a city, which is what Lot and his family did, that doesn't mean the city leaves you. The sins and the patterns and the culture of the city stayed in in Lot's heart. In an early chapter, Lot cowardly and shamelessly sacrifices, potentially offers up his daughters to a lustful mob, abusing his daughters advocating his authority as the head of his home to care for his daughters. And then the next chapter, we see it reversed, where now his daughters are abusing him. It's a terrible cycle. Everyone's sinning, no one's winning, and it's a deconstruction of the original created design. Everything is reversing on itself and spiraling downwards, falling, 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 and it's hurting everyone. 
And now in verse 1 of chapter 20, on the screen, you'll see this. Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived beneath Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed, sojourned in Gerar. So here's our setting. Abraham used to live near Sodom and Gomorrah, not next to it, but close enough where he could see the destruction. And at this point, we don't know if he ever even saw Lot again in his life. Because Lot, remember, was hiding in the cave, doing crazy things, right? Perhaps, though, Abraham was able to see Lot's wife, this pillar, this petrified pillar of salt, as she tried to return and go back to Sodom. So it makes sense why you would move. That's like a not a good thing to be around, right? It's not good to see a smoldering ash of a city. And so for whatever reason, we don't know, there's some speculation, he moves to Gerar. And it's, it's, it's under the rule of a guy named Abimelech. Abimelech. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 20 is something we saw in chapter 12. If you guys remember, in chapter 12, Abraham Freshly trusting the promises of God, got scared, didn't trust the Lord because there was a famine, and went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he pulled the same stunt, telling Pharaoh and all the people that his wife was actually his sister. Because he rationed, he thought in his mind that if he were to say that she was his wife, they would kill him. Because she was beautiful, and in that day, kings would just grab and take for themselves. And so... If you remember, Pastor Ross preached his sermon. I listened to, listened to it this last week, re-listened to it, just to review and recap. It was excellent. It was better than I remembered. So if you missed, chap- if you missed that passage, re-listen to it. It was really powerful and challenging to me. And so one thing that you have to remember is that after what happened in Egypt, Abraham got away scot-free. And he actually left, plundering the Egyptians. He was blessed in the midst of his duplicity and deceit. And so, remember, Moses, who's writing Genesis, is keeping all that in mind. So a lot of that context is skipped in chapter 20. So you have to keep it in mind. So I'm reminding you, and if you're a visitor, I'm trying to catch you up to speed. But now let's consider the weight of Abraham's action. If you grew up in church, maybe you've heard the story before. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, Abraham, like, called his wife his sister, and it's all good, right? It's just, you know, on and on, you move on to the next chapter. But consider this. Like, let's sit on this for a minute. What's the end game here? What's the end game for Abraham? How is he planning on this reversing? Like, his wife is literally has been taken by the king of the land to be his new wife of many. What was Abraham thinking was going to happen? He's advocating his wife to, to be raped. This is horrible. And do you remember just in the previous chapters, God promised Abraham that a year from this day, you guys are going to have a child. And do you remember from the very beginning in chapter 12, the promises to Abraham were ultimately not to end in Abraham, but flow through Abraham. Remember, he was blessed to be a what? Blessing to all peoples, all nations. And so a lot is at stake. This child that's going to come from Abraham and from Sarah is going to be the line that ultimately Jesus will come from and ultimately will bring redemption to the entire world. So Abraham is literally risking the entire redemption of the world. Consider that. This is no small thing. This is a huge matter. He's willing to 
give up his wife to save his life. And he's willing to give up the kingdom to save his life. And he's willing to give up the world to save his life. And I want to remind you, how long do you think? Well, let me ask you this. How long do you think since this last happened in Egypt? Anyone want to throw out a number? Five days? Year? Ten years? Twenty years? Twenty-four years? It's been 24 years since this last happened in Egypt and Abraham pulled this like sister wife trick. And I, I think there's a lesson here for us. See, Abraham has a tendency towards selfishness at times and cowardice and untru- distrusting God. And maybe you don't struggle with that. Maybe you do. All of us have different sins that we are more susceptible to while others find easy, right? And there are things that you find easy, and you're like, I don't know why you guys struggle with that. That's easy. We're all a mess. We're all complicated. But Abraham seemed to have a unique struggle here with fear and doubt, although the general pattern of his life with faith was faith. Even though he had gone through so much with God, I mean, think about all the history he's already had with God. This is an area that he was weak in. One, one preacher put it this way. It's on the screen. Generally, oh my goodness. Okay. Generally, he trusted God. Abraham believed the divine promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But sometimes, when pushed, he decided to give God a little help with a little lie. Inarticulate musings like, Lord, I trust you, but I just want to make sure that things work out right. You guys know what that's like? I, I do that, Right? We're going to explore more and more how this actually happened to Abraham later on in this passage. But there is a strong warning for us this morning, for all of us here. Listen, we can all fall. This is a sobering reminder that we are never beyond sin until Jesus comes back and gives us glorified bodies and abolishes sin. Cringe. Listen, cringe. If you ever hear from your mouth or fear from someone else's mouth that they have conquered sin, that they're beyond falling. Oh, I would never blink. If you ever hear her saying, I would never blink, then you need to double back and consider. Think about this. Abraham had not fallen into the sin for 20 plus years. That's a pretty good track record. It's not like he did it last week. This guy had a good streak of victory. And yet Abraham was still susceptible. If Abraham fell, you and I can fall. So listen, if you have historically struggled in certain areas... You need to be extra careful to understand how you are wired and your susceptibilities and make plans for that. Don't assume you're beyond things. Don't think just because you've had a good streak, you're fine and you can let all your guards down. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. But I want to highlight 1 Corinthians 10, 12, actually. Let's, Let's stay with this. This is one of the first scriptures that I memorized as a new believer. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. If you think you're standing firm, you're good. Take heed. You're already in danger then. Lest you fall. You can fall if you feel like you are standing. I I, I just, I want to guard us from two extremes. One extreme is arrogance and negligence because you think you're good. 
And the other extreme is paralysis, that you're only going to sin. And in Christ, we have the ability to be humble and know that we, are, we, don't, we don't have everything together and we're still sinners, lowercase s, sinners until Jesus comes, but also that we can have confidence the Holy Spirit can help transform us over time. So there's both a humility and a carefulness that the Christian should hold those tensions. And this story here reminds us we need to hold both realities careful by God's grace. As we continue in the story, we're going to see that even when man threatens the promise like Abraham, he's willing to risk it all, God will keep it, regardless of Abraham's faithfulness. So let me summarize in verse 3 and 5, God confronts Abimelech in the first recorded dream in the Bible. Many more dreams are to come. This is the first one. And he tells them, you're a dead man. Now, it's not like that we say, like, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. But, like, it seems, if you read the rest of this passage, he's already dying. Something's happened to him. There's a plague that hit him, just like in Genesis 12. Pharaoh got a whole plague in his, in, in his household. There's a plague, and it's hit Abimelech. But what is, is shocking is that as God is speaking to Abimelech in this dream, Abimelech defends himself. He's like, I'm innocent, God. I didn't know this was his sister, his wife. I asked him. I asked her. I'm doing this with a clean conscience. Now, I still think it's quite wicked to just take a woman, right? That's, that's not okay. But at least in that sense, he didn't think he was committing adultery, and he was just grabbing her, and she was another man's wife. God is giving him a chance to repent, But it's interesting that what he says in response to God is this. Listen to this language. He says, can you kill the innocent? Is it okay for you to kill the innocent? What does that sound like? Who else said that a few chapters ago? Can you remember this? Finish this with me. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? All right, we need help there. Genesis is constantly echoing the past. Abimelech is echoing to God. God, aren't you the good God, the good just God? How can you kill me? I'm innocent. I didn't know any better. And God honors that. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. There's a lot here, but let me ask you this question. How did God keep her from sleeping with her? How did he do that? Well, if you look at verse 7, he tells him that later on, return Sarah, and then Abraham's going to pray for you. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So it seems like something has already happened. And in the very final verses, we see that uh, there was a lot of women who were barren too. So there's something going on already. And so that held him back from being able to do what he wanted. So God sovereignly came into the picture and brought this sickness to hold him back from the sin that he wanted to commit. Remember that because of the fallen curse, men have a tendency and a temptation, not a guarantee, but a temptation to domineer over women, to use women for their own desires and pleasure, to put their needs over their wives. 
And we need God to intervene and change our hearts to change that pattern. And though Abraham offers up his wife to be a shield for him, God is faithful and comes and protects her. Let's look at verse 6 again. Look at this language. I who kept you. Therefore, I did not let you. See, God is the one who's stopping this sin. Stopping this sin from multiplying. I want to share with you a wonderful quote from Matthew Henry. And he says this. There is a great deal of sin. Gosh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. This has never happened. There is a great deal of sin devised and designed that is never executed. As bad as things are in the world, they are not so bad as the devil and wicked men would have them. It is God that restrains men from doing the ill that they would do. It is not from him that there is sin, but it is from him that there is not more sin. Either by his influence upon men's minds, checking their inclinations to sin, or, like in our situation, by his providence, taking away the opportunity to sin. Abimelech didn't have the opportunity to sin because of this sickness that came upon him. But look at verse 6 again, if you could go back to verse 6. Who does God claim that Abimelech is sinning against? Look at it. Look what the pastor says. Against who? God. This is the first time I think we see this in the Bible. The most famous one, a lot of you guys are familiar, is in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. David saying this, we're, we're starting to build our understanding of sin in the Bible. Yes, Abraham sinned against his wife, sinned against himself, sinned against, uh, sins against Abimelech, sins against the kingdom, sins against so many people. And yet, what God does here is he personalizes it. When you mess with God's creation, you mess with him. When you mess with his plans, you mess with him. All of this, yes, sin is horizontal, but it's also, and first and foremost, vertical. And this is very, very hard for us to comprehend, and I, I just want to admit I struggle with this, is that we think sin is just about us, and if it affected us, and we, we didn't live up to our best standards, and it's all about us, and still we are the center. But actually all that we do when we sin, we're actually sinning against our creator God. It's vertical first. And if you don't get the vertical, you're actually never going to find healing and freedom for the horizontal. And you're going to keep doing it. You're going to keep hurting people. If you don't understand the first and foremost, the one you are hurting first. Now let's see Abimelech's response. Listen to the question he's going to ask. Listen, listen, listen to the question he's about to ask and see if it reminds you of anything earlier in Genesis. Remember, Genesis is constantly cyclical and it's reminding us, it's echoing. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech, just look at your Bibles. <laughs> These screens are for visitors and people who don't have a Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. We ultimately don't have screens following us around in life. We want you to know this. This is, this is what you, we, you need, not the screens. So, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me that ought not to be done. And Bimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What does that sound like? What have you done? Does anyone? God and Cain and Abel. Lots of situations. The first time we hear this is in the garden. What have you done, Eve? What have you done later on, Abel or Cain? 
This is the echo. What, what is that telling, telling us? It, it, it almost seems like this godless pagan king, God is speaking through him and rebuking Abraham. What have you done, Abraham? Why have you acted like the serpent? The serpent is the one who deceives. Not my people, not me. That doesn't represent Yahweh. Yahweh's not a deceiver. The serpent is. And you're becoming like the serpent in this situation. He's calling him out through this mediator, through this king. Why did Abraham do such a thing? Look at verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham is largely right about them. I mean, they generally do not fear God. He snatches the wife for himself. But as we read this story, we're going to see that Abimelech has a lot more fear of God than Abraham realized. In fact, in this one situation, I'm not saying in, in, in general, Abimelech is shown more godly than Abraham. You're going to see that more and more. But thing that's so interesting is that Abraham, like me and like you, are often able to see other people's sins clearer than our own. Jesus has words for us like this, you remember? When you have a plank in your own eye, but you can see the speck in others. Abraham is keen on the sins of Abimelech and his kingdom, and yet he has failed to realize that slowly, for whatever reason, his heart started to get cold, it started to doubt God, it started to fear the wrong things. Abraham is able to see other people's sins clearer than his own and realize he's the one who's blinded in this situation. Which is a reminder for all of us because don't we all struggle in this? We're so aware of other people's failings. I mean, if they just merely ask us, we could help them and tell them. And yet we don't see it in our own selves. This is a striking Challenge for all of us here to take watch. There's more in your heart than you realize. And far be for us being the judge of other people's hearts. I'm also struck at Abraham's lack of care for Abimelech's kingdom. Remember God has promised in chapter 12, that he's going to bless those who bless him and also curse those who curse him. And so, if Abimelech goes forward with this adulterous act, what would happen to his whole kingdom? His whole kingdom would would perish. Abraham is potentially sacrificing Abimelech's whole family for his own self. He's risking all of these lives. This is anti his very purpose. Remember, his purpose is to be a blessing to the nations. And he's doing the opposite of that in this story. And let's consider more about Abraham here. Look at verse 12. He answers and rationalizes. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. She became my wife. Just, let's be clear. This is his half-sister, which is very normal in that time. But later on, in the law of Moses, it condemned marriage to half-sisters. Okay? So this is, remember, part of the Bible is this progressive revelation. And God is revealing more and more of his heart towards the world. And he shows more and more of what he wants his people to do. And he doesn't do it all at once. So then later on, he shows, hey, don't marry your sister, half-sister. Okay? They didn't see it as wrong. Now we know. 
Does that make sense? Okay, so let's, let's put that aside because that's weird, all right? But again, the Bible didn't shy away. The Bible doesn't be like, that, yeah, that didn't happen, but it did. It did, so we're going to talk about it, right? And when God caused me, look at verse 13, caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place in which we come away from. Say, he is my brother. Note Abraham's mindset. Men, Husbands, you're called to lay down your life and show kindness to your wife. But in this, he's reversing. He's saying, you show kindness to me, Sarah, and you lie, I'll lie to protect us. Consider how Abraham is technically telling the truth, right? Do you guys know about half lies, right? And yet he knows the impression he's giving them. He knows that when he says she's sister, they're not thinking, oh, half-sister, and you guys are actually married. They don't think that they're married. He's deceiving them. He's acting like the serpent. He's giving them an impression, a false impression, to what is reality. He's fooling them. It's still sin. It's still a lie. It's still deception. And church, Christians, we ought not to ever go near half-lies, half-truths. Half-truths are full lies. Another reason why Abraham fell back into the sin is that he did not learn from the past. This is an important lesson for us. We actually see that the genesis of the sin was not when he was in the courts of Pharaoh, but when they left their homeland. Early on in Abraham's life, in his immaturity, as his faith is developing, he made a pact with his wife, as you guys have just read. And he should have went back as he matured and realized that this pact was evil, it was wrong, he should never have done it. But sometimes we, as younger believers or immature believers, make commitments that we do not revisit, and they have wreak havoc to this day. This is why it's so important for us to reflect on past seasons of what God is teaching. Did our actions align with the heart of God? See, I wonder the reason why we don't see Abraham really learn is because Abraham was blessed in this situation, wasn't he? He left Egypt with a ton of money and things. See, when you do something and it goes poorly, it's easy to say what went wrong there, right? A plus B is C and C sucks. What happened with A and B? But what happens when C goes well? We can often look back and think, well, we're good then, right? Because we also have the faulty belief that when things go well for us, it means that God's approving us. That God's pleased with our actions. But what we study and we see throughout the whole Bible, that God blessed Abraham not because of Abraham's righteousness, but despite his righteousness, unrighteousness. God was blessing him because he's gracious and God is faithful to keep his promises. And this is a danger for a lot of us because we can look at our life. We're like, well, I'm healthy. God's not striking me down. So he must be approving. And we can also take it the opposite. And this is, this is the danger in Job, right? Is that we think that if things are going bad, God is not pleased with you. The Bible rejects both extremes. And, and, and the greatest case in point is Jesus. Who was ever more faithful and righteous than Jesus? And yet his life was an absolute horror at the end. Was God pleased with him? You better believe it. He's right in the will of God. And remember Psalm 73 that we studied recently? The, the wicked can prosper temporarily. 
and they can think in their mind and be fooled that God's pleased with them. See, the, these, these truths are all interconnected, and they're so important for us to understand, church. We cannot directly tie our physical, earthly blessings with God's approval. And so, because he was blessed, I speculate that Abraham did not really learn how grievous his actions were, and therefore set it up to repeat. And indeed, this situation will be similar, and he sets it up for his son to repeat it as well in chapter 26. In both with Pharaoh and Abimelech, Abraham's trickery doesn't work because he was clever or shrewd or wise. It worked because God was gracious. Now let's look at this extravagant grace he's going to experience. Verse 14 through 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male and servant, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. This is the opposite of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was like, get out of my land. Verse 16, to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Abimelech goes above and beyond. The typical bride price for a wife was 50 shekels. He gives him what? A thousand shekels. Although Abimelech was deeply wronged and deceived, he is pouring out blessing extravagantly upon Abraham. He's welcoming him to live in his land. He's giving him lots of stuff. He is extravagantly giving him what he does not deserve. That sounds like what? Grace. Abraham is given grace despite of all of his sin. Also, Abimelech does not hide the whole affair. He doesn't do it quietly, slip the money, get out of here. That's going to make me look bad. What does he do this? He does this publicly. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. He's publicly reinstating her, Sarah's honor, and he's doing whatever it takes to make things right, which is one of the most common signs of a truly repentant heart. A heart that has godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. A heart that has godly sorrow is say, I will do whatever it takes to make things right, and I don't care the repercussions. I don't care what it looks like to you guys. I got to do it. And whenever you want to throw up at least a yellow or orange flag is when someone, they, they say they want to repent, but they're trying to hide everything. They don't want to lose face. They want to do it secretly. That's a, that's a warning sign that there's not true contrition and true broken heart over their wrong. Look at verse 17 as we start to wrap up. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Who, who healed him? God. Not because Abraham is so powerful or righteous, but God is gracious and heard the answers of his unrighteous servants. And he healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Verse 18, for Yahweh, the Lord, had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God is the one who closes the wombs and it sets us up for next chapter because what do we see in chapter 21 if you want to look at your Bible just quickly? What do you see? The birth of Isaac. Isaac. God opened Sarah's womb. 
God opens a 90-something-year-old womb and brings forth the promised child so that that can bring redemption to the world. Let's reflect a little bit about this hero faith that we look up to, the father Abraham. Listen, Abraham did not truly repent from his previous lie. He encouraged his wife to lie. He did not trust God. He prioritized his life over his wife. He prioritized his life over Abimelech and his old kingdom. He prioritized his life over the entire promises of God to redeem the world. He lied again. And in this situation, God lets Abimelech looks more righteous than Abraham. Why am I sharing all that? I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I, I want us to fully grasp the reality of one of our heroes. We do not delight in Abraham's failures, but this is a reminder that God's people are not God's people because they're better than other people. Or because they're always righteous, because sometimes they're not. Or because they're better than other unbelievers. No, Abraham was saved. Remember Genesis 12 and 15. By what? Starts with the F. Faith. Because he trusted his promises. Not perfectly, but truly. He trusted in God's promises. And that's what counted him as righteous. God's people are not God's people because they're better than other people. Far be it from us to look down on those heathens and those non-Christians because they don't, they're not as good as us. No, no, no. You are saved if you are trusting in Christ because you are putting your trust and your faith in him. And over time, that transforms you. Not because you're better. In fact, God regularly throughout the whole Bible picks the worst people. To show that it's not them. It's his grace and mercy. So us Christians here, we should be the most humble people. The least judgmental, arrogant people that anyone knows. I want to challenge you. Is that your reputation among people, both believers and unbelievers, that you are humble? That if they thought, what are the top five characteristics that would characterize you? They would think humble. Because you really grasp the extravagant grace that God poured upon Abraham and ultimately pours upon us. The only proper response is humility. Is brokenness. Is a gracious, gentle heart. I love how God's grace covers Abraham. This sad event did not define Abraham. Throughout the rest of the Bible, you don't hear this being referenced again. Abraham is called a man of faith. He's still called a man of faith because this did not define him. God's grace is greater than this moment or these moments. Do you remember I talked about the yo-yo analogy, right? Going up and down a hill. This, this was a low in Abraham's life. But you're going to see in the next few chapters, there's going to be a big high, which is the reality for Christian life. There's highs and lows, and God is the one who's faithfully carrying us up all of it. And I, I want to make sure you do not misunderstand this truth here. Abraham's falling does not give us license to fall. He didn't only fall in his life. He actually progressively became more and more godly. This is a moment it did not characterize his life. So if all you do is fall and you point to this text and others to justify your pattern of falling only, then you need to take careful note that you are doing great injustice to this text and to God's word. But what this text does do is help us that when we stumble, we can rise by God's grace. We can fight. It's not the final word if you're still alive. You don't have to wallow in your sin. You, by God's grace, can put your heart and your hope in his hands, and he will carry you through. And sometimes you're going to be like the world, and sometimes even worse. But Christians, when we 
continue to put our trust in God, the Holy Spirit will increasingly transform us to be more like Jesus by his grace. And so let me end with this. Let's celebrate this Jesus whom Abraham put his ultimate trust in. It was in seed form, but he was looking to the final promise of the Messiah. Unlike Abraham, Jesus trusts God even if it costs him his life. Indeed it did. Unlike Abraham, Jesus does not use his bride as a shield, but rather shields his bride for her good. And he doesn't just shield her from death, but eternal death. On the cross, Jesus shields us from the punishment that we deserve, and he absorbs it all. Jesus is better than Abraham. And in doing so, he grants us the greatest gift, not forgiveness, That is a great gift, but the greatest gift gift is himself. Jesus paves the way so that we can have right relationship with his God. Let me remind you of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And if you read the NIV and other translations, it's actually say, I will be your great reward. What is the great hope for us is that God is our shield. He's shielded from sin, shielded from our own sin and our own suffering and, and the devil and the wrath of God that we deserve. And not only is the shield, he makes us, it gives us an opportunity to have God as our great reward. And that's what we get. So I want to welcome the band come here up and we're going to continue to celebrate and think about Jesus. Let us trust in him, church. I have a few response questions that will probably look terrible on the screen if it keeps the pattern. Yeah. So here's a few questions to consider. As they play instrumentally, here are a few questions, and then I'm going to give you a few more instructions. Are there any areas of your life that you need to take, take heed lest you fall? And if you want to look more, look at 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. Is fear driving you towards distrusting God? Three, if you are not actively following Jesus, why not today? What's holding you back? And finally, thank you, Lord, for being gracious and faithful even when we are not. Let's put our hope in him. So during the, during the next few songs, you could just meditate on this. And after a song or so, you're welcome to go get your kids. Uh, if you go to the next slide, as we respond to the word, you can pray, you can meditate. Those questions are going to come back up in a moment. But you can minister to one another. If you feel led by the Holy Spirit to pray for someone, do, feel free to do that. Receive ministry. If you feel like you need prayer, you're like, I need help. I need prayer. I'm falling back. You go grab someone, ask them to pray for you. Uh, maybe um, you want to give at this time through, uh, through offerings. Um, we're also going to be grabbing the elements here. And then taking them back, and then together we're going to take them later. So just hold on to those. So the the Lord's Supper, for the next slide, the Lord's Supper is a family meal for those who are God's people trusting in him. If you're a part of another church, you're welcome to partake. But here's the requirement. You have to be actively following Jesus. This is a peace meal. And if you're not right with God, first get right with him before you're going to take the supper. So grab those, hold it, and, and then meditate on these different prompts if you can go back. So...